0: This morning's sermon text is coming from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 29. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with your neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and gave no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fast as, as fixed the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear.
1: Have you considered how much Christianity has affected our Our culture, our world. I mean think about it for a moment. The the establishment of the hospital, for example. The hospital was kind of established more in the fourth century, uh, being attached to churches as a means of caring for those who are broken and needy. There were other care centers, but it was only for the elite. The church saw the need to do that. The church was the one who began orphanages and caring for those uh, children who were unwanted, thrown on the pile. Uh, Perhaps the wrong gender, perhaps something wrong with the child and and they would cast them to the side. Church established the university educational systems believing that God has created the world with with fixed orders to study and laws of nature that they began and and were the first to move in developing universities. You think about the way Christianity has affected uh, music, art, science throughout the ages. You think about the role of Christianity uh, moving the saints to seek the abolishment of slavery. When you think about how Christianity has affected the world, it's profound. But the reason Christianity has affected the world is because Christianity has affected us. I mean, Christianity, the faith is to change us. Now, we're doing this series on one another's, and we're—we're we're today we'll be talking about speaking uh, truthfully and helpfully to one another but but I want to give you the context uh, for for what this sermon is and and we're in Ephesians because in the first three chapters in Ephesians as you remember from a few weeks ago uh, we 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 saw how God changes us by his spirit through the gospel that God in providing a son uh, through whom we find forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption, that God makes us alive in Christ. He changes us. We're different people. And he changes us by the power of his Spirit. And the change that we see takes place and is evidenced in our lives. Hence the passage that was read today, that we speak differently When we have been changed by God. When we've been made new, as the scripture says. Uh, We handle anger differently. Uh, We deal with work relationships differently. Uh, We handle conflict differently. We use our words differently. In other words, that internal spiritual reality of God giving life to the Christian is then evidenced in their lives. So that's what we're going to talk about today. In one particular area, while there are a bunch of areas mentioned in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, we're going to speak about words and about how we speak and how God changes, not just us to save us to himself, but it's evidenced in how we speak. But what I want to do first Is Show you the reality of the change. I I hate to just drop into text of scripture and try to explain them I want to show you the context here. So two things I want to do today One is I want to remind you of how we're being changed Right that God has done a work in us and how we're changed the reality of it. I'm going to actually speak to 17 to 24 the passage right before ours and Then I want to talk about the nature of the change So there's the reality we've been changed. What does it look like? You know, how ought we to see change take place in our lives? So the reality of change. Uh, Notice if you have your Bibles open, look in verse 17. You see Paul speak about the expectation of change in our lives. He says, you must no longer walk like the Gentiles in the futility of our minds, darkened in understanding, alienated from the life of God, callous, greedy, and in all kinds of impurities. And then moving forward, he says, this is not how you learned Christ. Paul's saying, hey, listen, if you're a Christian, then you ought to have these differences beginning to take place in your life. You ought not walk as you once walked. If you've learned Christ... And to learn Christ, that's an expression for if you love Christ, if you've believed in Christ, you're going to be made different. And we see that this is a work of God. We call it a monergistic work of God. Look with me in verse 23. It says, you were created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the gospel change is God working in us changing us, creating us to be like him. This is what the Bible in John 3 refers to as being born again. Think about it. When you're born again, you start new. It's like a, a recreation, if you will. This is creational language here. Just as God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and now he's creating a people for himself. God's creating us to be like him. So you're born anew, You're like a baby, and just like a baby, you begin to what? You begin to grow up into maturity, and that's what Paul's speaking about here. He gives us new life, and then we begin to grow up. It doesn't happen in an instant. This is what we call sanctification. It's a progressive change that God is doing in and through us, but notice he explains the nature of the change. Look with me at 22 and 24. He says, put off the old self, which Belongs to your former manner of life. He says, put it off. Now you can put it off. Why? Because he's made us new. So put it off, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. So you see this creational language that he is making us new. So evaluate yourselves for a moment. Do you see the change? If you're here, and you're a Christian, do you see the change in your life? Do you you look at things differently? Do you handle life differently? Uh, Friends, if you're here and you think Christianity is simply a philosophy or ideology, or it's just cognitive, this is going to be a challenging passage for you. Uh, And the passage is really speaking about this change that ought to be taking place in the lives of all those who are rightly related to God in Christ. The change won't be the same. It won't look the same in every life. It won't be at the same speed, but there will be a change. There has to be some form of change. So when I came to faith in Christ, I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. When I heard the gospel, came to faith in Christ, and began worshiping with Carol, my dad had some struggles with it. He, he was troubled that I would leave the church that I was raised in. And after back and forth for a bit, I finally said to him, I said, well, which Tom do you want? Do you want the old Tom or do you want the new Tom? And he said, and, and you know what, to his credit, he said, I think I'll take the new Tom. It was different. It, my life was darkened. It was lived in the futility of my own thinking. It changed. And he said, I, I want the new one. So that's, that's the gospel change. How does this change occur? Well, the change occurs through the power of the gospel. We call this the power of a new affection. Uh, Friends, when you begin to understand our human predicament, that we are broken, uh, that that we are driven by selfish desires, that we look at the world. Augustine said we're, we're bent inward. Everything is about us. And we begin to see the troubles and the trials in this life are due to our own selfishness, our own idolatries and we see the human predicament, and then we see the absolute grace of God to provide a son who would come among us, bear flesh, suffer for our sins, bear God's righteous judgment in his body on a tree that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God, then you love him. You're overwhelmed Thomas Chalmers called this the power of a new affection. I now love him and I want to do his will. I want to follow him. This is how the change comes. It's wrought by God, drawing us to his beauty, and we come by faith. Now, some of you may be here with friends or family and you don't know what this means to be created. You you don't know how. How can I be born again? How can I be made new? I want to be made new. I do see my own sin. Uh, Friends, just reach out to God in prayer, just asking him to reveal himself to you, to show you the nature of your own brokenness, your own predicament, and that you might, by his grace, be saved. Ask him ask for forgiveness, ask him to give you eyes, to see the beauty of the one who has come to save and come to deliver. This is what it means to be changed. Now this doesn't mean we just, we just then sit and passively receive all this. We do to be made justified before God, to be made right with God. It's an act of God through the work of Christ by the spirit. But notice he says, There is a role that we play in this development of his new creational work. Just like he created the garden, gave it to Adam and Eve. He made it perfect, but he didn't make it complete. They were to then what? Work and keep the garden. So when he makes us new in himself, he calls us to then keep progressing towards that likeness of God. Notice he says in 22, put off. And put on. There is a role that we play. We are to distance ourselves from our former habits and patterns of life. Now I know some people will hear me now move to putting off and putting on and well now we're getting to works and we're getting into legalism. No, not so. No, you, you can't put off and put on if you haven't been changed by God. But if you have been, it's what, if you try to be moral on your own, Well, if you're a rule keeper, you may do it well, and it'll lead to pride. If you're not good at keeping rules, you'll fail, and you'll lead to despair. You can't put off and put on apart from the prior work that God has done. If he's done a work in your life, then you have the capacity to begin to say, no, I'm putting off that old pattern, I'm putting on. This is what Augustine said when he said, command what you will, but give what you command. Tell me what to do, but give me the grace to do it. That's what we're praying here. We're called to be putting off. So when you look at 17 to 24, Paul's setting this context. He's saying, you've been changed. You've been made new. Now. Begin to walk in this new life. That leads us to 25 to 32. The new life that he's outlining, Paul's giving us kind of a a street level. This is what the new creational life ought to look like. For those of you, if you're here as a Christian, this is what your life ought to look like. It ought to be changing. This idea of, of putting off false speech, putting on truthful speech. You know, putting off kind of unrighteous and and vented anger, putting on more controlled, controlling your anger. You know, putting off work that's all about me and my identity to, no, now I'm working so as to give to another. You know, putting off this idea of conflict and bitterness, but I'm going to move towards forgiveness. Or putting off words that are hostile and destructive and putting on words that are healing and nourishing. That's what we're talking about. This is what the new life looks like. This doesn't save us, the putting off, but it evidences it. So Calvin said you know, that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. There's always that evidence. That's what we're speaking about here. So what we'll be doing in this sermon is speaking about Well, speaking about speaking. That's what we'll be doing. We'll be talking about talking. How do we talk to one another? How do we? So we've been in this series of the one and others, and this is about how we talk. This is incredibly important for us. Incredibly important. He shows us two ways that we are to speak with each other. Two ways. So if you're taking notes, there's two buckets. We're to speak truthfully to each other, and we're to speak helpfully with each other. Truthfully and helpfully. Uh, look with me truthfully at verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So think through. He says, therefore, what I just did was I explained the therefore. Therefore, in other words, given the fact that he has made you new and he's called you now to put off and to put on. He's now going to give us examples of what you ought to put off and what you ought to put on. So he says, put off falsehood put it away from you he's referencing course 422 Uh, don't don't walk in falsehood anymore falsehood in speech what do i mean by falsehood well specifically the word means lying we're not to lie to one another we're not to tell untruths now remember these were gentiles coming out of a a pagan culture where you got to do what you got to do to survive and so if you've got to lie, if you've got to twist a little bit, if you've got to shade a little bit, that's just what you do to make it. And he said, no, 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 not you, not you. You've been made different. You now have been born again. You've been created in the likeness of God. And so we don't lie. Now, friends, lying wasn't just a problem then. It's a problem now, right? In the book of the day, America Told the Truth, a survey of adults was that 91% of us lie, in some form or fashion. A survey was taken of 20,000 middle and high school, or um, junior and high, I forget how you do it now, was it junior and high school, or middle and, and high school, 20,000, 92% lie to their parents once a week. If you're here and you do that, specifically what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, we don't do that. We don't lie. Uh, some sociologists estimate that by the time you're 50, you've said 45,000 lies. It's a pandemic. It's, it's not just for men. It's Ruth, without respect of gender, age, social class, education. Psalm 116 says all men are lie. We struggle with telling the truth. And Paul's saying, but you've been born again. You've been made different. It's not just lying, though, kind of saying an untruth. It can be silence when words need to be said. So, something at the office is said, and you don't bring more information, truthful information to bear that would really recast the situation in a reality. That is a form of lying just by being silent. Not, not you, maybe, maybe you're getting credit. You don't want to add what you didn't do, or maybe you don't want to tell the truth of that person really doing what they did. You know, there's a form of lying by science, deception. You know, we deceive by taking truth, twisting it to try to frame up a different reality than is. We see this all the time in journalism. We see it in advertising. We see it in social media. Where we're deceiving by removing context or not telling the whole story. Names are ruined by this. Reputations are destroyed by this kind of deception. But there's exaggeration. When we're trying to create a situation that we're we're embellishing what we did in that situation, or we're under, or we're under it, you know, we're, we're kind of under. Uh, underestimating what we did so as to maybe mitigate our failures. There's false flattery, that idea of I'm promoting or speaking to something about you just so that you like me more or put me in a better position. So there's all kinds of ways that we twist and speak in falsehood. And what he's saying is that the evidence is to speak the truth. He says, to speak the truth to your neighbor. Now, in a Jewish context, a neighbor would be a member of the covenant community. And so for our context, it would be a member of this church that we're called to speak truthfully. And notice he says, each to another. So all of us, it's not just the spiritual elites that are called to speak the truth, but it's all of us. We're called to speak the truth to one another. By truth, I mean, what is actual? What is real? You know, what is reliable that we're speaking to a situation as it really is We're called to speak the truth. And he tells us why we do this. He says because we're members of one another. It's interesting that he doesn't say it's a sin against God. He should say, speak the truth to one another, otherwise it's a sin against you. He doesn't even bring that up, although it is a sin against God. <clears throat> he goes right to the, to the disaster effects on our church. That when we don't speak the truth to one another, that we're wounding one another. See, the nature of the church is in organic union. We are together in Christ. So through faith in Christ, we're drawn as brothers and sisters together. So we're members of one another. And when we don't speak the truth to one another, we're wounding ourselves. It's like if I'm starving and my eye is lying to my hand so that I can't find the food that I need to eat, I'd be working against myself. It's like an autoimmune disease. It's your body working against yourself. So it's wounding, or it's sowing discord, and it's sowing disunity and disharmony. In other words, it causes a biblical community can't exist without being able to rely on the words of another. And and so you see the importance here, the importance for the health of our church. Why Paul would say, to put off falsehood, speak truth to one another. So friends, this is clear to you. You know, like Mark Twain said, it's not the difficult things of the Bible that are challenging to people. It's the things we understand. Those are the hard things. So this is easy to speak the truth to one another. So evaluate your own souls for a minute with me. To what degree are you tempted to, to slant, to shade? Uh, when I was growing up, it was white lies. White lies were okay. Uh, they, they were cleaner than the dark lies. The white lies were the little ones, or as I was raised in the, the Catholic tradition, it was venial sins. Mortal sins, they're bad ones, they can kill you. But the venials, they're not as bad. No, 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 I don't, we don't play that anymore. Uh, To what degree do you slant, do you shade, do you obfuscate when you don't want to bring the truth? I mean, look at your marriages for a minute. So how often do you not tell the truth so as to avoid conflict with your spouse? How often do you maybe, maybe twist things a little bit so that it just keeps the peace? Or, or if, if you're friends, you know, you're telling a story, how often do you change the facts of a story that you might appear a little better or maybe you appear a little less worse than you were in that story? Or, or, or parenting, how often do you maybe not tell the truth or shade or slant so as to prevent a dust-up with the kids, you know, just to kind of keep, keep the peace? or at work. How often do you maybe don't say anything? uh, Because to say something may really shine a better light on the person that did a majority of the work, you know, and that you you don't want them to get too much credit while you don't get enough. We do this because we think, of course, that, you know, it's, I don't want to hurt the relationship. I can't speak the truth to them. Or we say it because you know what it'll it'll it 'll endanger somebody else I you know we go to the Holocaust if someone comes to the door, are you hiding Jews? Well, I have to lie to protect someone let 's not use exceptions. those are difficult ethical discussions, no doubt about that uh, but let 's not use those to kind of give contour to the regular run-of-the-mill, thousand words a day challenges that we have. So evaluate yourself. Now, the reason I want you to evaluate yourself is I think this is a good way of looking at our own heart. Jesus says in Matthew 12, he says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So if we're lying or if we're, if we're walking in these falsehoods, what does that say about us? Jesus, in fact, a couple chapters later in Matthew 15, he says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So friends, don't be, don't be overwhelmed by this. Take an inventory of your speech. To what degree do you travel in falsehood? Allow that to give you a window into your own heart. If you travel in a tremendous amount of falsehood, then you might, have I been born again? I mean, have I really been changed? It it, it may be a time where you move from religion to actual faith. Ask yourself, have I been born again? Now, I don't want to to kind of, I don't want you walking away saying, well, he's questioning my salvation because I have trouble telling the truth. No, maybe you are a Christian, and, and this ought to lead you to repentance. Repentance is such a gift of God, isn't it? It allows us to look at our lives with honesty and truthfulness and come back to God, knowing that Christ is sufficient for our sins. So evaluate your souls. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So that's all I'm asking you to do. Uh, But secondly, I would say, secondly, don't underestimate the power of words. Words have power. In in Proverbs 18.21, he says, the words have the power of life and death. Uh, Words have power. And we we don't want to walk in falsehood. Why? In Proverbs six. You know, Solomon writes that the Lord hates. There's six things, rather seven, that the Lord hates. Two of the seven are sins of speech. It's lying and it's falsehood. The Lord hates these. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 36 says, that, I tell you the truth, on the day of judgment, you will give an account for every careless word that you say. So, so let, that, let that move us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Let it remind us of the power of words, which we're going to see the good power of the word in just a minute. But so, so, you know, recognize the power of word. Thirdly, make a commitment to tell the truth. Uh, Make a commitment. Listen, one author said, the truth will set you free, but first it'll make you miserable. It is hard to tell the truth because it often can be kind of disclosing of our own failures or maybe bringing a hard word to a friend that we may initially offend. But make a commitment to tell the truth. Telling the truth makes you real. Thomas Merton said that honesty makes us real. Why? Because when we don't tell the truth, we're walking in a false reality. We're not dealing in a reality. This is some other kind of make-believe story we're telling when we walk in falsehoods. But when we tell the truth, we become a real person. We walk in reality. But it is hard. We have to make a commitment. And I'll say what challenges the commitment is we live in a very empathetic and therapeutic age. And to bring a hard word of truth to another is seen as offensive, threatening, threatening, We just want someone to say, that's hard, just tell me about it. That may be a good entry point into a conversation, but it can't remain there. We are people of truth. We have to speak the truth to one another. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. If we see a brother or sister moving in a destructive way, then to not say something is indifference. That's worse than hate. Indifference is, I don't care. So so there's a place for us. We have to make a commitment because it's challenging. Truth is always by its nature confrontational. So it's hard sometimes to deliver. And that's why earlier in the chapter, verse 15 in chapter four, he says, speak the truth in love, he says. He says, and we will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Part of our maturation as a body of Christ is through speaking the truth in love. So when we speak the truth, it isn't, hey, I got to get this off my chest. It's really been bugging me. And really what we're doing is we're tired of the way they behave and we want them to change for our sake. But if we speak the truth in love, we actually love them. We love them. Can you imagine a parent not instructing a a child who's walking in a self-destructive manner and say, well, they got to learn themselves. What what parent would do that? You'd move right to them and you'd say, no, no, no. So we want to speak this truth in love. And the way we speak in love, I think, is then given greater explanation in verse 29. So the first point is we speak the truth. We put away falsehood and we speak the truth. But then the way we speak this truth in love is seen in in 29, where we speak helpfully. Look with me at 29. In 29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that, only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, So again, you see Paul being consistent, put off, put on. Right? He did that with he did that with truthfulness and speech. He did that with anger. Don't do anger this way, do it this way. He did that with working. Don't work deceptively or deceivingly, but work honestly. And here now he goes back to the same pattern: put off unwholesome speech, put on helpful speech. Now, when we see that word unwholesome speech or corrupting speech. We think blasphemy, coarse language four letter words, that kind of thing, surely those are included, but I think there's more than that. The actual Greek word is used for like rotten fruit or spoiled fish it's like a decaying situation he's saying don't speak in a way that corrupts the minds of other people that sows seeds of division, reputational harm don't speak in a way that that decays or erodes you know. Know, a person's opinion about another person or about a situation uh, don't speak that way it can be sarcasm it can be gossip it can be slander it can be labeling people it could be grumbling about another it, it, it could be these this this corrupting decaying rotten speech that, that doesn't bring any nourishment any nourishment to the listener but what it does is it just brings like it's, like, it's like poisoning the well. It's like pouring some poison into the water source. And then everybody just drinks a little of it. And over time, it just kind of erodes their health. He says, put that away. Let nothing come out of your mouth that is of that nature. But notice what he says, rather put on nourishing speech. Speech that builds up, he says. He says... but only such as good for building up. That's a word from the construction field, the framing up of a house, right? Where you're building someone up, you're strengthening them, you're encouraging them. It may be a word of appreciation, a word of gratitude. It was said about Job that his words strengthened weak knees and helped those stumbling. And Job 4.4, 4, uh, that, that he strengthened weakened knees. It's that word that you need to hear to be Encouraged to continue on in faithfulness. It needs to fit the occasion, right? It it needs to be appropriate. We all know that it's wholly inappropriate to be a jokester at a funeral or at a wake, at a viewing, to be cutting up and making jokes. We know how inappropriate. It just as it is to wear black and be mournful on some celebration. What's the occasion when we speak to another person? We want to be mindful of the context. Read the room. Is this the right time to say this or that, to encourage and be helpful for them? Uh, but, the, but our words, speaking in love, are going to be as if giving grace to them. You know, in Proverbs 12, it says that the wise man bring words of healing. So our words are healing to people. It's like nourishing them. It's like giving cold water to a parched throat. It's like watering a dry ground. Our words start to give grace. So when we're in conversations with one another, we are speaking the truth, but we're also trying to encourage them to, to express our gratitude, our thankfulness, our appreciation. It may be a scripture that you bring to bear in someone's life, reminding them of the truth of God in a difficult time. It may just be a word of your, your love for them and your desire to walk with them through the difficulty that they're in. So, so you, you see uh, such simple instructions for the health of the church, the, the one and and yet how difficult, how difficult. This is why David prayed. He says in Psalm uh, 141, set a guard over my mouth. He says, Keep watch over the gates of my lips, so that my heart is not inclined to evil. Do you ever pray that prayer? Do you ever ask him, God, set a guard over my mouth. May I not speak flippantly. May I not speak. You, you know, in Proverbs twelve eighteen b, reckless words are like sword thrusts. You know, just you know how that hurts when someone says something, and it feels like, and it can come from your spouse. It's like a sword just enters you. And and it hurts. We ask for help. So, friends, again, just like I asked you under speak truthfully, now I'm speaking about speak helpfully. Evaluate. To what degree do you speak in nourishing ways in your marriage? When was the last time you you spoke with the intent to nourish them? Now, remember, it has to fit the occasion, right? Right? And it's also for the building up of others. Do you notice the communal nature of our language? We control what comes out of our mouth, but it's always in a communal context. Unless you're speaking to yourself, and then if you do, please come see me after the service. But otherwise, our words are always in the context of a community, aren't they? And they're always affecting whoever hears. And so we want to pray that last time in marriage... When was the last time you brought nourishing words? Or or with a good friend. You're not married. You you have friends. You have conversations with them all the time. When was the last time you spoke to them in ways that, that, that identify a strength that they have? Maybe some characteristic that you're appreciative of. That you're seeking to nourish. You're seeking to build them up. Hey, I saw you respond this way in the faith. That really impressed me. That was very helpful to me. This is the kind of conversation that we're to have with one another. And so, so evaluate your speech. Again, out of the mouth comes the, the thoughts of the heart. So first, evaluate. Secondly, when you do speak, make it fit the occasion. You know, be aware of the context. Uh, be aware of: Do I have the time to say what I need, or, or do I need to set up another time to speak with them about it? Maybe if they have to speak some word in love, or is it the right appropriate? You know, is it the right context to bring this word? Uh, will they hear it better if I wait, or if it's a different context? And, and then also, so that it would give grace to the hear. Part of our speech has to be us asking questions of them, discerning where they are and what they might need. You know, many conversations, you know, you've heard me say this before, but bear me repeating myself. Many of us struggle with narcissism in our conversation. We come up and we all, this is what I'm doing. This is my life. This is my job. This is how I'm doing. And we... We end up being in conversations that are all about us. Or if someone's speaking about an experience, this happens all the time. Someone's sharing their experience, and then you come up and you identify with their experience and you you then share your experience. And sometimes that's fine and appropriate. You're talking, you're dialoguing. It can be co opting a conversation. What we seem to have here is he says he says <clears throat> only such as good for the building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. There is some sacrificial attitude needed when I'm in a conversation that I want to forego what I may want to say about me so that I can encourage and hear about them. That means you don't speak about yourself. and that's that's difficult because we want to be heard and and the the way the Christian church works is no, I'm more interested in you than I am me at this point. And we need help with that. But we've been made new, right? We we'll go back to 4 17 to 24. He has created us to be like him in righteousness and holiness. We can move. Can you see Jesus? I mean, can't you imagine the ministry of Christ? I mean, his ears must have just been drooping, listening. And, and encouraging, strengthening. So, so when you look at speaking hopefully, evaluate your heart. When you speak, look at the occasion. Is this appropriate time? Have I discerned the needs of my brother or sister? Do I know how best I ought to speak to them to encourage them? And then, and then last, I, I would say, be careful what you listen to. Be careful what you listen to. And what do I mean by that is, well, we live in an internet age, right? So anybody can say anything. They do it on podcasts. They do it on social media. They do it on Facebook. They do it on Twitter. You're You're either looking at a screen or hearing from a screen. And all this is coming at you. And if you're listening to that which is untruthful or questionable or unwholesome, it's going to cause decay in yourself. And it's going to begin coming out of you. I want to remind you, you know, when, when Satan sought to bring down the first couple, he didn't come with swords and spears. He came with words. He, he, he stole their heart by going through their ears. What's going through your ears? What are you listening to? Is it true? Is it right? Is it godly? Is it wholesome? Is it nourishing? If it's just cranking up fires by dumping wood, it won't won't serve you well. And it'll affect then the way that you speak. Often the way we hear is the way we speak. You know, you hear somebody and they speak so graciously and you think, I want to talk like that. So as we look at the health of this church, remember we started this whole series. You know, that, that, that evangelism is kind of a centrifugal force of the gospel going into the world, right? We go to the nations to declare the glory of Christ. But there is a centripetal force of the church that as we love each other, as we speak truthfully and helpfully to each other, as we exercise hospitality to one another, as we bear with one another, and as Dalton's going to speak next week, as we fellowship well with one another, we draw people to the church kind of like a like a light in a dark draws us to itself so friends let's just take a moment and just bow our heads and ask God for grace ask him for for strength by the power of his spirit that we might speak truthfully in love and helpfully with one another and then I'll pray for us in a moment Father, I praise you that you have made us like yourself. We can communicate with words. Lord, uh, we confess, I confess um, how many reckless, careless words I have spoken. Not considering the occasion, not considering the listener. Father, we want to we walk. Uh, you have created us in Christ Christ to walk in your likeness, to display your image to a lost world. Father, help us as a church. Help us in our marriages, in our friendships, at work, that we would be mindful of the power of these words, that they have the power of life and death. They They can nourish and heal, or they can crush and kill. Oh, Father, wake us to this reality. Let the the conviction come upon us to produce redemptive results. That we would we would seek your Spirit. We would humbly ask for grace. Father, we think of Christ who is the Word. May we uh, be changed. Uh, may you give us the grace so that we can put off falsehood, we can put off corrupt, and that we can put on truth, and we can we can put on nourishment in our words, Father. Uh, let that take place even in our conversations following the service. And Father, for those of us that feel this unique burden, may it lead us to repentance and the joy of forgiveness. Your mercies are new every morning. Let us feel and experience, not just understand it, but let us feel it and move in light of it. Father, strengthen us as a church.